you think about cyberspace, yeah. I think that's probably where you'll find the innovations being done by other government departments and aerospace and defense that will then be bleeding out into commercial space as well. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development as businesses aim for long-term success. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sofion CTO. If you're looking for additional information around new product development or corporate innovation, sign up for Sofian's newsletter where we share news and industry best practices monthly. The fastest way to do this is to go to sofian.com that's S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com and click the sign up and stay informed box. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Glad you could join us again. I have a very nice guest today, Tim Sharp. Tim is with Sofian. He's our, our aerospace and defense account executive in uh, Europe, but he has a great background. He's was a military helicopter pilot and staff officer for 27 years. In the end, he was a lieutenant colonel in the UK Joint Doctrine and Concepts Center, where he ran the analytical program that looked at the trends and drivers that would shape defense and security 15 and 30 years into the future at the grand strategic, strategic and national levels. Also spent time at Boeing and Fujitsu Defense and National Security, so he certainly has the credentials, and he's kindly joined us today to talk about innovation, aerospace, and defense, differences, and unique challenges. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Glad you could join us. Where are you joining us from today? Currently working from home, as I guess most of us are. I live in a village called Petworth, and that's in West Sussex, southwest of London. Wonderful, wonderful. Hopefully, uh, summer's coming your way soon, or is there? <laughs> It doesn't look like it right now, but I'm sure it's around the corner. <laughs> Good. Well, when you I use the term aerospace and defense, but but there's aerospace and there's defense and there's aerospace and defense. Can, can you actually describe what that is for us? Yeah, yeah, I can. So let's take all the aerospace bit first. So I guess you start off with commercial aerospace. Uh, and that's effectively the airlines as we know it and all the support that goes behind the airlines. And of course, right now, they're really, really struggling. And then you've got military aerospace, which you come to think about it, probably came before the commercial use of, of airspace. Because there weren't any airlines before World War II. And I guess it was probably the uh, the invention of the, the the jet engine that enabled us to build you know bigger aircraft, go and drop bombs on people, and now we use the same aircraft to drop people, but off on their holidays. And that, <laughs> there's a really good book on this era actually, and it's called Empire of the Skies. Oh, I've read that book. Phenomenal. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. a great one. So you got that. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so if that's the kind of both aspects of aerospace, then space was originally you know, run by governments. So think of Sputnik, think of Apollo, space shuttle, now becoming more commercially orientated, certainly with satellites. And then defense really is about the use of land, air and sea, and more recently cyberspace. And that would be defined as taking activity to defend a nation's population, home, but also to protect the nation's interests abroad and those you know, could have come about through colonizational days, could have come about through strategic alliances like NATO, maybe involved in keeping sea channels open like the Straits of Hormuz. 
And then sometimes people throw into aerospace and defense security. So I was at defense and national security in Fujitsu and security is really the, the other government departments that are involved in protecting the nation and our interests abroad. So that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, it's quite a quite a broad category. You wouldn't think that aerospace companies like Boeing on one end and, and then defense security systems, missile systems and those yeah, kind yeah. of things. It's quite broad, isn't it? It is. And some of them, like Boeing is a good example. They're involved in both commercial airlines and in defense. And they also work in the security space as well, but they just don't talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there's the alignment. Yeah, great. Well, how did you first get involved in innovation? Okay. So, gosh, I guess that would go back to something like 2006, 2007. I was working with a company in London. I'd recently left the military. I was doing pre-sales. They asked me to take on product development. And in particular, they wanted to have a new product that would be suitable for aerospace and defense. They had three pillars, maritime, health, and, and, and defense. And so I took a basis of our product was about rostering people, but then I matched the people with the training and the platform to basically give a measurement of deployed military capability. Because if you've got trained people on available platforms, that's a measure of of capability and people would often just say you know are we good to go uh, we're at high readiness are we good to go yeah. and this system would tell them if they were good to go <laughs> that term good to go is is appropriate in almost all innovation are we ready to go yeah. are we ready to launch are we good to go i like that term yeah yeah well you have a particular success story along that way you'd like to share I do, I do. And I think my favorite story, which I still use when I'm talking to people today, was a time we were working on a very low-level project in NATO headquarters in uh, the Supreme Allied Command Europe, or, or SACER. And the guy we're working with said, could you help us with a de-SACER problem? So de-SACER is always a, a British general. SACER is always an American general. But he was responsible for force generation. So think about the product I was just talking about earlier on, are we good to go? But in this case, he was wrestling with a kind of quarterly review across the nations in NATO about deploying troops and equipment to Afghanistan. You have to understand NATO doesn't own hardly any equipment at all. It relies on the nations to contribute. And to join NATO, you have to say each year, these are the capabilities that I have and you know they're available to NATO as and when required. So when it came to you know asking for them and needing to deploy a squadron of aircraft or you know a, a company of infantry or some engineering to go do mine clearance, then the nations sometimes would look at their shoes rather than stick the hand up at fourth generation conference and say, yeah, we'll do that. Because every time you do that, you're putting your nation's soldiers in into harm's way. Mine clearance is a good example. But he knew that they had capability because they declared it to NATO and they you know, reviewed that every year. So what he wanted was a tool that would sort of balance the what was his demand for needs of deployed capability with what each of the nations declared as being available. But then because it was like a six or 12 month um, cycle of changing them over, you know, when was the last time this nation had provided that capability? Because you wouldn't want to keep hammering the same nation each time. So he wanted to share it. So this allowed him a tool that showed this is what you've got theoretically available. This is how it's been utilized in the past by nation. 
and this is the demand we need in a year from now. And therefore, he wouldn't name and shame nations who continually looked at the shoes at the time when he was asking for the mm. capability to be deployed, but he could identify those who were perhaps a little bit heel dragging. And then he'd use, as only you can in NATO, being a, politically, a political and military alliance, he would use the political side and his ambassadors and his national representatives to say, next month, I'm going to be asking for this. I think it's time you stepped up to the plate. It would therefore make his job so much easier. And it really was about getting the data into the right place so that he could make better decisions to use sway and influence to get the, the forces that he's needed to deploy. And, you know, I, I sat on his, the edge of his chair after he did this. We did it in about sort of eight weeks. And I sat in his chair and I showed him how to do it and on the laptop that he, he used for it. I said, this is fantastic. I now have the tool I need to do my job. And that just gave me so much job satisfaction. What a success story. Yeah, I mean, and, and impactful. What, what a difference that would make on a global scale. Absolutely. It was a difficult time. It was a difficult time for NATO and it was a difficult time for him, but it, it made his job easier. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so often I found... I was probably able to have more influence, not in uniform, trying to do that, than the 27 years I had in uniform, trying to sort of work it out from the inside. Yeah, well, it's, you know, that story is not that different with innovation in other industries. It's, there's, you know, it's, it's about, sometimes it's just about getting the information together, organized in a dashboard so somebody can can take an action or make a decision. And I'm sure that uh, at the scale of NATO, that was quite a, quite a project, but uh, hats off. That's a pretty neat story. Thanks for sharing it. Yeah. No worries. Well, building on that, you know, what, what, and, and thinking aerospace and defense, I, they do have similar challenges, as we just said, but they, they also have many unique challenges, I believe. So what challenges do you see in the industry when they're trying to be innovative for their future capability development? So kind of aerospace defense is similar and yet different. So, you know, in manufacturing, you need to innovate with new products in order to stay relevant and keep your market share. But if you are a large OEM in the aerospace and defense sector, innovation usually comes about in a way they use emerging technology to, say, gain leverage over a potential adversary or use innovation to gain a competitive advantage in, a, in an open government tender. And in terms of, in terms of you know the, the the difference, very often you would use innovation to upgrade a platform rather than just go out and create a new platform in an innovative way in the hope that someone's going to buy it. So the challenge is, well, I, I guess timing and speed is always a challenge because you know a nation might decide it wants to build a new submarine or it wants to build a new aircraft carrier, and you know it could take ten years by the time they've done the requirements and gone out to tender and, and built it. And so in that 10 years, things can change. You can have new technical threats emerge. So the original plan needs to be tweaked, shifting kind of requirements, therefore from the customer, the kind of shifting sands in the geopolitical spectrum. spectrum. And like I say, very often you, those costs can escalate because of the fact that the requirements keep changing. And I guess the next challenge would be to do with technology because very often you're working at the, the cutting edge or the bleeding edge of technology. And that has its own, own challenges, really. 
you know, think about concepts that haven't really worked. Graphene, graphene was the kind of the, the, the thing that was going to save us all. And yet I don't see many graphene related yeah, you know, solutions right, out there. Right, Google Glasses yeah. were, you know, kind of augmented reality, but never really kind of took off. So it can be become too expensive to productize. And sometimes, you know, the market just isn't ready. You might do something that really is useful and utilitarian, but the market just says, well, you know, threat's not quite there yet. Maybe next year, maybe ne next decade, because it's all about, you know, is there sufficient risk at the time? I think the market is interesting one. Ben Cooper's book's very good on this. He talks about winning at new products and the newness to market and the balance between creating new to market product and, and making improvements and additions to existing platform. So they don't say, hey, let's go build a new aircraft carrier and see if we can sell it 10 years later. But more often than not, they're responding to that government request and then meeting that blueprint in innovative ways. And then see if they can go on and sell it to another nation. So if you look at the, the Leopard tank, for example, very good example, built for the Germans. And I think they're now on Leopard 5. So there's been several iterations of that tank and pre-sold to most nations than any other tank around the world. That then starts to get complicated if you think about aircraft and aircraft platforms, because then you get into these things called ITAR, ITAR regulations. So you might build it for your nation, but you don't want to have another nation that might become a potential adversary to have necessarily absolutely the same technology. So, so sometimes it gets kind of dumbed down. So you still got that lead over the adversary. And then I think the other thing is increasingly is going to be budgets. And if you think about, you know, what's a clear and present danger, and you could think about what's happening in the Middle East today, the risk in Taiwan, Hong Kong, South China Sea, Black Sea, and indeed Ukraine. You know, those are all kind of risks and present dangers, but now compare that to a global pandemic that's actually killed 3 million people already. So if you're a medium-sized nation and you've got a finite amount of, you know, GDP to spend, are you going to spend it on recovery post-COVID and ensuring it can't happen again, or are you going to spend it on defense and security of the nation? So I think those are the key challenges. That's really interesting. I think my takeaway from that is certainly it's a long haul business. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's not like I'm going to develop a product and come out in a year or two. Very strategic, long-term thinking. If I'm a supplier into that, let's say I'm not, I'm developing a piece of something, a piece of hardware, a piece of software, something that's going to go on to that submarine that you mentioned that's going to come out in 10 years. I can imagine I've got quite a challenge there. I Even from the revenue standpoint, right? I, I, when do I recognize revenue? I put something out there, but it's not really going to be used for, for a long time. That's, that's different than other types of products where you, you pretty much after you develop them, they're, they're being used. Yeah. And I guess the only counter to that is the volumes and the value can be quite high. So yeah. that's why they do it. And then, of course, as you know, as is an emerging threat to an aircraft or a submarine or to some other platform, then they'll look for bolt-ons and add-ons. So mm -hmm. if you look at the vehicles that went out to Afghanistan originally, compared to the ones that left 10 years later, the number of bolt-ons and add-ons that they had to provide, you know, better security and protection for the deployed forces, a lot of people made a lot of money over that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just, it's not the same product. <laughs> changes. No, no, no. Uh, it used to be that it was well, well known that technology 
really advanced technology began in the military. The budgets were there, the funding was there, the, the uh, scientists were there, you know, the whole research. And then eventually would get out into the commercial market, out into the rest of the world. Does it still work that way? I think it does. I think the example I gave earlier about, you know, aircraft being used to drop bombs and then became, you know, airliners that could drop people off on holiday is, is a good example. Today, I guess there are examples of that. And you might say, you think about cyberspace. Yeah. I think that's probably where you'll find the innovations being done by other government departments and aerospace and defense that will then be bleeding out into commercial space as well. Yeah, I mean, there's there's things that we we never dreamed. Of. Maybe some people were smart enough to dream of what what GPS would do for us, right? But now it's yeah. it's a core part of our lives as as individuals in the world, and and many of us, and certainly that that came from there. So it's exciting stuff. Yeah. Well, what um, is there one piece of of industry news you've seen lately that uh, you think is kind of important? Well, there was a piece of industry news that I read a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and, you know, I'm a great fan of NATO and served in NATO. I went to the NATO Defence College in Rome and had a great time there. And that led me into doing that work on strategic trends. And I was responsible for writing the physical dimension. And so way back in 2003, I looked at, you know, what was going to happen with global warming. And did that have an impact on, on you know, the trends in aerospace and defence and security? And it was quite interesting to read that NATO is now taking on a a new thread of work about how climate change might affect the way, you know, defence and security works in, in the future and what impact it's going to have. And there's another book being a paper written recently by a UK freestyle general on the, on the same subject of climate change and defence. And I just thought that was really interesting because it's been around for a while, as I identified back in 2003, but now people are really starting to think about it. And And I remember we said things like, an increase of risk in interstate conflict, um, maybe where tension already exists due to global warming, around the availability of water and food. And so as global warming occurs, the crop belts shift. You know, crop belts will normally grow, yeah. grow in a certain latitude and they will move up or down depending on what type of crop it is. And people needing that food will then sort of want to move across borders in order that they can continue to you know, feed their nation. And there's also risk of vulnerable states and failing states being able to yeah. less cope with that demand and therefore likely to lead to the military being used for the softer end of the spectrum of, of defence, which is you know, delivering humanitarian assistance and disaster relief and that kind of thing to prevent conflict. And then you're going to have movement of people across borders in unstable regions and that kind of fleeing we've seen in South Sudan and Syria but a whole moving diaspora of people looking for essentials of life, such as food and water, is going yeah. to create tension and unstable regions. And we have actually seen how food blockades have been used in Yemen and actually kind of weaponizing natural resources as a, you know, a, another tool in the toolbox of, of, of military pressure. And I think that the, the NATO topic is particularly relevant. I did some work doing contingency planning on the north flank of NATO. And if you think about all the, the melting of the, the permafrost and the ice, it's now opening up sea lines of communication, slocks as they call them, allowing new routes for people to come round the, the north, but also making you know cross-country travel. And you, you've probably seen those kind of marines in tracked vehicles going over yeah. ice and snow. That's going to be more problematic in order to defend the northern flank. So I think it's it's just an interesting aspect 
of you know how NATO has to adapt and evolve to the whole world and the new world order. And as climate change is affecting that, it's going to another layer of complexity they'll need to consider. And I thought that was quite interesting. It sure is. I, I think there's a lot of dynamics in there that, uh, that I certainly hadn't thought about. Even people moving geographically, migrating, if they have to, for, for, far, for food or for water. I just hadn't thought about that and all the implications around it, both political and social. There's quite a bit, yeah. uh, quite a bit in there. That's, that's really, really interesting. Well, where do you see innovation being introduced in the next five to ten years in aerospace and defense? I think there's a lot of potential and, and requirement for, for innovation. So if we go back to that original kind of what's the definition of aerospace defense and start with commercial, as we previously mentioned, you know, the order book has fallen off. I was in Dubai Air Show, must have been five, six years ago, and it was a record day for the most airlines that have been ordered by nations ever. And it was in trillions of dollars Everyone's buying, you know, aeroplanes. And now look at it today, you know, order books are just being cancelled all over the place. People are mm. not buying new airlines. And of course, they're not buying airlines. They're not buying food. They're not buying seats. They're not buying navigation equipment. whole supply chain is, is struggling. So they're going to have to work hard to be innovative. And they're going to have to work with IATA, I think, in terms of sort of vaccination passports and how that's going to have to work around the world doesn't matter which, which, you know, your port of embarkation or port of disembarkation, you're going to have some kind of internationally recognized system. And I guess airlines will be working so that they, they can get flying again. They might even consider different filtration systems. I'm never quite sure whether the air filtration in an aircraft is, is very, very good, like they tried to tell us it is. I just know that whenever I flew long haul, I always came back with a cold. You know, and it's the same virus effectively, but just transformed in a different way. So maybe they're going to have to do with air filtration systems. And I think there's also the green agenda. They're going to have to do something about, you know, emissions in the same way as looking at electrification of, of vehicles. I do know there are prototypes for, you know, electrifying aircraft. But how do you build a battery that will give you, you know, an 8, 10 or 12 hour flight? I don't know. But they're going to have to be innovative about that. I think in terms of military aerospace, which is really about, you know, military aircraft, military helicopters, and of course, increasingly unmanned aerial vehicles. I think UAVs is where the biggest innovation is going to come. So the big challenge at the moment is this business about collision avoidance. So if you think about UAVs, they only ever fly in, in areas like over the sea or not in controlled airspace. So you need to have this collision avoidance, they call it C and B scene. So in a, in a cockpit that's manned, there's plenty of things, there's radar, there's, there's people with eyes looking out, and it's the CNCB scene. And I think if you think about mm. what you can do in your car nowadays, and I know I've got cruise control with radar activation on it, and it keeps me at the right speed and the right distance from the vehicle in front, I think there's got to be lessons learned from automotive about how UAVs can be clever and, and contribute to that collision avoidance. Yeah, it does seem that there's a lot of innovation happening outside the military. Of course, I, I don't have knowledge of what's inside the military. I don't have clearance. You do, but you can't talk about it. But, you know, I think about things like the battery stuff that Tesla's doing and, uh, like yeah. you said, the unmanned navigation. It's got to relate. Either either the military is going to source it from, from the consumer world or, or it's going to happen the other way or jointly. Yeah. I think the other exciting thing with UAVs is they're actually looking at sort of having a manned fighter. And normally you'd have a wingman who'd be there kind of checking you six o'clock and you'd work as a pair. 
flying around the sky. Now they're looking at, well, let's just have one man fighter and then we'll have a swarm of UAVs accompanying him or her. And you just think, ah, oh, cool is that? You know, because again, you know, if you've got the CNCBC you know, and collision avoidance, you could, you could get around that. Yeah. Now, what was that? What was that science fiction book, Ender's Game? Yes. <laughs> Where he's, right? He's writing a whole war. He doesn't even know about it with again. That may be the future. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about unmanned vehicles. Yeah. Well, what are you working on right now that's, uh, that's exciting? Do you know, I love my job with Sophie on it. It's really interesting, and I and I, I just love every day. So I'm working with a number of the big OEMs, multimedia enterprises, to help them with their innovation programs, which kind of manifests itself in different ways depending on you know who they are and what they're at. So one particular one I'm working with because they need a better sort of governance and insurance about their innovation program. They had a particular program that was you know, absolutely top-notch, but it just overran massively on cost. And they looked back and went, we need to have a proper stage gate system that will allow us to make the right decisions. So it's kind of what we talked about earlier on, is about having all the right data at that decision-making moment that would allow them to make the right decision and, and make better decisions. And a bit like what I did with you know, Desacur, it was giving him all the right data to make the best decision. And then I have another customer I'm working with and they just, too much data out there. And it's all in different silos. It's in different places. It's in different formats. They can't really collaborate. They're finding it more challenging than they need to. And we're using a variety of modules with them to help basically to digitally transform their portfolio management that supports the innovation. And then finally, we've got a customer who's asking us to help them with their the product or platform is how it emerges, platform lifecycle management. So the military are really kind of big on this subject and they want to know about the total cost of ownership and they want to know what that's going to cost them over 30, 40 or 50 years for the lifetime of the platform. But also, you know, what's the through life support cost? Because often that's more than just buying the platform over that time. And what's that through life support going to cost them? And also increasingly, they want to know how green is my tank? If I'm going to yeah. own this for 50 years, how's it going to contribute to mm -hmm. net zero? And when we're talking about a green tank. We're not talking about its camouflage here. We're talking about, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. can that work off batteries? It's emissions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, there's a, there's a real excitement in your voice. I can hear it on your history, things you've done, your knowledge of the industry, things you're working on right now. Really, you seem very uh, excited about what you do. It just comes across really clear. I think it's about being able to make a difference and that really gets me going. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, I, uh, I, I know I want to thank you so much, Tim. That was a very, very good information. Very helpful. I th I'm sure our listeners are going to, going to really enjoy that. I do know a fact about you and I think it's a pretty neat one that I, I'm going to, I'm going to hope that you'll, uh, you'll indulge me here. Our listeners, I think they might enjoy it, but you have a talent singing a certain type of, of song. It's called a sea shanty. And if I asked, could you sing a couple of verses? I know they could be quite long, but maybe just to... So what, I, what I've discovered, not everyone knows what a sea shanty is. So a sea shanty is a working song. Sometimes they were sung with a Pacific rhythm, rhythm 
to tie in with the uh, hauling of yards to hoist the sails. So they would have a regular beat and they'd have a shantyman would be there at the capstan singing the song and then they would haul in, 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 in beat to the, to the tune. There's also another kind of set of songs which are called forbitters. So they would, they'd go into the forecastle and they would sing songs just to keep them happy. Now, I'm, I'm lucky enough to actually own a boat. It's been my lifelong hobby. And we quite often sing songs at sea because you could be you know, 12, 12 hours mm. on, on the ocean and you just sing to keep yourself occupied. My, I guess one of my favourite songs is called the Herring Boat Song. God, I don't think I'm ever doing this. Um, and so uh, it's about leaving Yarmouth, which is a port on the Isle of Wight, which is on the south coast of England, uh, about a group of fishermen who are hunting the herring. Oh, it was a fine and a pleasant day. Out of Yarmouth Harbour we were sailing. As a cabin boy on a sailing lugger, we were hunting for the shoals of herring. Now you're up on deck, you're a fisherman. You can swear and show a manly bearing. Take a turn on watch with the other fellas as you're hunting for the shoals of herring. Wow. Well, if that doesn't make you smile, I don't know what does. Oh, oh one quick thing. If people want to find out more about uh, about you, track you, how can they follow you? I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. I don't do Facebook, but I'm definitely on LinkedIn. Great, great. Okay. Tim, thank you very much. I wish you a great day, and thanks for uh, joining our podcast. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for joining and listening. We look forward to our next session. So have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.